Let's open up to Acts chapter 20. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the seat back in front of you or nearby. You can raise your hand. They can hand it to you. Was blessed this past Monday to officiate uh, Ed's uh, Ed Onger's memorial service. It was just quite powerful. There's just this place was packed. We had about 200 people overflow room, and it's just uh, the fire department showed up, and not as as a bad thing, but I mean. <laughs> See, I already just put foot in my mouth, but it was quite awesome. If you could keep the Onger and the Eastman family in your prayers, that would be much needed. Um, bug them in the next few weeks. It's, uh, you know, I think quite often, like with weddings and in, with funerals, we always go all the way up until the point of the event, and then we forget about people right afterwards. So that's when the work actually begins, and it gets really hard. And so please uh, be keeping Denise and family in prayer. Acts chapter 20. <coughs> now, as I mentioned last week, uh, Acts chapter 20 is not a chapter with a bunch of doctrine in it. And so um, you're wondering how a pastor can squeeze so much out of so, so little. Yes. It's called a spiritual gift. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but just verses 1 through 4. It says, uh, when the uproar had ended, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. And he traveled through that area, speaking many words of encouragement to the people, and finally arrived in Greece, where he stayed for three months, because some Jews had plotted against him just as he was about to sail for Syria. He decided to go back through Macedonia. And so he was accompanied by Sopater, the son of uh, Pyrrhus from Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derby, Timothy also, and Tychicus, Tychicus or something, and Trophimus from the province of Asia. So, uh, again, this chapter doesn't have a lot of doctrines, but we're going to see into the life of Paul. If you're just joining us this morning, uh, we had finished the book of Ephesians. What happened is we're going through the book of Acts. And as we get to the various churches that Paul is reaching on his, on his different missionary journeys, he had three missionary journeys and one imprisonment journey, or maybe divided into two, some say. Um, as we get to those, uh, those sections, we break off, and in, in, in if we feel like it's appropriate, we read the books or the letters written to those churches. And so where we left off was Acts chapter 19, and that was the book to the Ephesians. And we just finished the book of Ephesians. So we're coming back and we're reading through. And believe it or not, it's around this time that, b- that Paul is writing the book of Romans. Um, I don't want to go into the book of Romans yet. And so I will take that a little bit later, okay? Because you can see by the, the speed I'm going through Acts chapter 20, we could be in Romans for 10 years. That I don't want to do that to you all. Um, but anyways, I just want to give you um, an idea here of where we are. And so there's not a lot of doctrine here. We're just looking at the life of Paul. You know, quite often you can learn a lot from people from looking at them, watching their life, what they do, how they live, how they spend their time, how they spend their money. What's their calendar look like? What do they do um, with their resources? What do they do with, with how they live? That, that is the true testimony of what it means to be a Christian. In other words, it's not just Christian in name only, that Jesus Christ is actually living in and through us. He's changed us, Right? Amen? I don't know how many feel the weight of that, too. <laughs> oh, gosh, they're watching me. Oh, I'm not an example. Yes, you are. Uh, Jesus is now in us. And as we are looking here, we see how Paul is living and what he's doing and why he's doing what he's doing. And so we're kind of reading in between the lines. So while it's not the main point of what's being written, Luke is just recording where he's going. I think that the Holy Spirit is also allowing us to see into the life of Paul. And I think you, you will agree with me by reading these verses. You see a man who loves God and loves the church. Who loves God and loves the church. Now obviously the Apostle Paul was called to a special mission. We aren't all called to quit our jobs and leave everything we're doing and, and go on six, uh, three missionary journeys and get hit with rocks everywhere we go. But we are called to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And what does that look like in our lives? And are we, uh, uh, as disciples of Jesus Christ, are we obeying him? Amen? 
And so while we look at this magnificent life, I just want you to be encouraged and glean as we look at our brother, Paul, who calls himself the chief of all sinners, what he did and how he lived. And Paul would go to the churches and he would say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Isn't that a powerful statement? To be able to say, look at how I live when I was among you. Live like me. And he challenged them. And the reason why he challenged them is because Paul lived out his faith. He was able to say, whatever you're doing, pretend you're a tent maker or you're, you're a fireman or you're a pastor or you're, uh, you're a mother at home, uh, whatever, maybe you're traveling all around the country, imitate me as I imitate Christ. This is how Jesus would live in this circumstance. This is what he would do. This is how he acted. This is how he'd prioritize his life. Amen? And just look at Paul and, and the tenacity he had and just the, the intense love he had for God. You know, our mission statement for our church is to glorify God. And that word glorify is to reflect God. That's the idea. Is that as we are looking in that f- the fullness of the Lord and as we are receiving from him and giving to him, that reflects out into the horizontal atmosphere. It's like a mirror tilted at a 45 focused on the sun. As that, that sun strikes down and hits that properly, it reflects out into the world around us. And we want to glorify God. We want to reflect who he is and what he does in, in, in everything we are and how we do it. And we're in the process of learning that. That's what a disciple is. We learn how to do that. We learn how to obey. We learn how to reflect. We have kids that are learning to reflect us, for better or for worse, amen? But that's what it is to become a child of God, to reflect him. And our mission statement is to glorify God through love and obedience to Jesus Christ. There is no difference between loving and obeying Jesus Christ. That is his love language. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey me. In this world we live in, we live in a strange world. What is love? And you ask people, and it's, it's a feeling most of the time, or it can be a set of principles. But we live in a world that defines love differently than the way that God defines love. And I think it's important to know how God defines love since he is the author of life. He's the one who defines things. And he defines love as this. In John chapter 14, as we're looking at the life of Paul, where Paul isn't just walking around saying, hey, I love God and I love the church. It's actually been lived out, which is love, right? And so he says, uh, Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 15, he says, if you love me, keep my commands. And just in case the disciples didn't get it, he repeats it in verse 21, where he says, whoever has my commands and keeps them, is the one who loves me. So he flips it around for the, you dyslexic people, just in case you didn't get it. And even again in verse 23, he says, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching, will keep my word. So he says it three times in different ways. If you love me, this is how you show you love me. You do what I say. I don't know, that strikes against my flesh sometimes. And Jesus' command is clear in the next chapter, John chapter 15, beginning in verse 12. I'm just walking you through some of the things that the elders went through as we are discovering our mission statement for the, for the church. To love and obey Jesus Christ is to glorify God. Well, what does love look like? What does obedience look like? So Jesus' command is clear in John chapter 15, verse 12. He says, my command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Love each other as I have loved you. So this is where the vertical relationship gets horizontal. Or one of those things. I got it right, Christine. Awesome. (laughs) Speaking of dyslexic people. But this is my command, that you love each other. Now, sadly, our day and age, if we ask the common person what love means, we would get a variety of answers. More and more, the idea of love is defined... uh, uh, around the confines of an emotion. How many of you remember when you were young being in love? What in the world does that mean? Boy, that has a whole bunch of feelings involved in it, right? Amen? 
It's okay to say, yes, I felt that way. And there's a lot of emotions, and they look nice, they smell nice, and they're pretty and all that stuff, and, and you don't know them very well yet, and <laughs> they don't know you, and so there's love in the air, right? And this, this kind of ethereal little thing. How many of you married people feel like that? How, how long does that last? Here are the chuckles. And then you find out what love is. Love is not based solely on emotions. Love is a choice. Love is a choice. It is a choice based out of one's character. Now, sadly, we see that we are defining love in our culture based upon things that are not considered God's love. But as we see God's definition of love, we see that love is a choice based upon the very nature and spirit of God within the heart of a believer. Jesus makes this clear in verses 12 and 13 of John chapter 15 when he says, My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for one's friends. So the love we are to love each other with is a love that is found in and modeled by Christ to lay down our lives for one another. And the greatest form of love Jesus teaches is to actually lay down our lives. And he's not even talking metaphorically. He's talking literally laying down his life. He's saying the greatest love one can have for another is to lay down your, your everything, even to your, to your death, for the betterment of someone else, for our brothers and sisters. This is the ultimate of dying. That is the ultimate expression of love, Jesus is saying. And it was expressed in him on the cross. Amen? When a person's born again, guess what? God's love becomes part of our lives. Because the spirit of God, the nature of God, we become partakers of, Peter says. We now have a, a God nature within us. Why? I have been crucified with Christ, Galatians 2.20, and who no longer lives? I no longer live, but who now lives in me? But Christ lives in me. How does Christ live? He loves with the love of God. Christ is in you, and he's longing to love with the love of God. Peter puts it like this. It says, his divine power, follow with me for a second, okay? It's a little bit heady, but we're talking about the love of God here. Peter puts it like this, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. It says, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. Can you believe that? How many of you find the Christian life difficult? Do you know that He has given you everything you need for a godly life? It's yours. And He says, Through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness... He says, through these, that glory and goodness, he has given us his very great and precious promises. Think about the promises of God. Because of his glory and goodness, he's given us the promise of eternal life, the promise of his Holy Spirit, the promise that he would never leave his forsake us. You just keep on going and going and going and going, right? Why did he do that? Because of his glory and his goodness. That's just his nature to give us that. That's pretty cool so that through them you may participate in the divine nature. You may participate, you may participate, you may share in the divine nature. Not the world's love, how they love, but you may share in the nature of God, how he loves, for example. Having escaped the corruption of the world caused by evil desires. He goes on, I don't want to bust this apart right now because we've got places to go. It says, for this very reason... Because of his glory and goodness and his sure promises, make every effort to add to your faith goodness. He says, you, you say you believe in God. He says, now make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness and to godliness uh, mutual affection and to mutual affection love. Wow, he adds this seven elements, ingredients to add to faith. So don't let your faith just say you, say you love people. You've got to add things to it. 
That's what it is to grow in obedience to Jesus Christ. You're learning to obey Jesus Christ. You're, you're adding goodness to your life. You're adding knowledge. And, and your, your knowledge is, is giving you self-control, awareness of things. And, and that self-control gives you perseverance. You're able to persevere through trials. And to persevere, you're now godliness. And to godliness, mutual affection. You start to love people. Why? Because God in his very nature, guess what? He loves people. You're becoming more like Christ every day. That doesn't just happen. It's a choice. You give it. You, you deny self and, and you learn of him. And, and that knowledge isn't the puff up. It's actually the build up. And so you're changing as a Christian. And it all adds up to love. For if you possess these qualities in an increasing measure, then you will keep from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. How many feel ineffective and unproductive as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus Christ, I, I would encourage you to read Second Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. Study that and say, you know what? You've got to add to your faith something. You've got to follow after Second Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. You see, Paul didn't just get up one day. He got knocked off his horse and started, decided to follow Jesus. But there was a growing process in his life, just as there is with every single Christian. I love that. I love looking at you seasoned saints who have been doing this for year after year and letting the Lord, uh, you know, work this process into your heart and you just see this precious saint who just loves people with the love of God. I love that about. And you can see the exact opposite, uh, a crusty, hardened, you know, get off my lawn type of person. You know, <laughs> I'm practicing that, get off my lawn. <laughs> just kidding. I don't even have a lawn, but I want to say it. No, just kidding. But they'll keep you from, but he says, but whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. So we're to grow in love. It's not enough, just enough to say uh, you believe in Jesus. This is where James comes together. He says, you say you have faith, but where is your works? And what is he talking about by works? Where are your works of love? You see what I'm saying? He's not just talking about, oh, okay, I'm going to go do this for Jesus today been hanging out with Jesus. You're seeing him. He's changing your heart. His word is changing your mind about yourself. You're becoming more like the Lord, and it's actually reflecting in your relationships. It's reflecting in your actions and how you're living and what you're doing. So if I was the enemy, what would I want to do? I'd want to stop that process. I want to put things in there that would circumvent you from experiencing love, experiencing the fruit, experiencing the joy. And that's where spiritual warfare comes in. You ever notice you start to do something? You start to go to a Bible study? You want to get up for Sunday morning? You want to do anything that's spiritual? What happens? Your flesh goes, no way. And the enemy goes, well, here's something to add to the no way. And let's add to the no way something else and something else and something else. And so it produces death. The Lord wants the opposite thing going on. So it's not enough just to say you believe in Jesus. Your faith should produce the fruit of love, which is faith in action, good works. And this is what we see in Paul's life and should be modeled in ours. And as we've already discussed, we see Paul's love for God by his love for the church, his love for his brothers and sisters. That's how it's expressed. Amen? I love that. We see where it says, if you love me, love one another, Jesus said. Love is demonstrated in various ways, right? As First John 3, 8 says, it says, Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Love is an action. Love is a choice. Love is something that's determined within the will of a person, and it's actually followed up by something you do. That's awesome. For God so loved the world that he said he loved the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That's a sacrifice. That's sacrificial giving. And you, you cannot see love in the scriptures separated from, divorced from, action, giving. It's all connected. And so... When we talk about glorifying God as a church through love and obedience to Jesus Christ, it's not just to get you to go to Bible study. It's not just to get you to, to, uh, to, be, to pray. 
It's not just to get you to be in fellowship. It's not just to get you to evangelize. It's not just to get you to do all those things. You can do those things and be dead. Do you understand? But when you are abiding in Jesus Christ and his love and his life is in your heart, guess what starts to happen? Your life starts to change. And you want to know what he thinks about life and you start going to his word. Now, you're going to have the thing where you don't want to be in his word, but that's you just need to die like Jesus wants to die and do the will of the Father. And then you're going to start to ask God stuff. You're going to start to pray. You see where it comes from, though? And then you start to evangelize. Why? Because you love God more than you love yourself. You start to give. Why do you give? Because you love God and you love others more than you love yourself. You cared more about other people's welfare than your own. You start to arrange your life and your schedule around the needs of the kingdom. Why? Because that's what Jesus did and Jesus is alive in you. See how it works? The other way is religion. Now, Jesus wants your heart. This is why I'm, I'm, you know... um, You know, I'll preach about stuff and stop doing this and start doing that, but it all comes down to where's your heart with Jesus? How you've been connected to the vine? What's he saying to you? Are you even saved? You know? We can talk to people and get them to conform on the outside all day long, and they're dead. They don't have the ability to do these things because they're not regenerated in their souls. Boy, the love of Christ piercing the darkness, the forgiveness of sins, being regenerated. Now the spirit of Christ, when they receive Christ as Savior, that's a work of God. They become changed from the inside out. You don't have to manipulate anything in their heart. God is already working. You just start speaking to their soul. You start speaking to their spirit. You start feeding their spirit when you're around here. And the spirit's going, yep, that's food. That's healthy. That's good. That's life. They start growing towards it. Amen? It's awesome. It's awesome. But you can tell dead people all day long to do the right things and they'll do it and they'll die and they'll go to hell. So we start with a heart. Anyways, I don't know why I went off on that. But as we see in verses 1 through 4, Paul's love is demonstrated through affection and concern. I'm not going to go through it all again. Through giving, by collecting an offering for the saints in Jerusalem when he went through Macedonia. See that in other scriptures? Through encouragement, as he went through and encouraged people with many words. Through perseverance, and that he didn't give up when he had opposition. How many of you just want to give up when it gets hard? Love perseveres. Love finds a way to meet that need. And through discipleship, and that he took these seven guys with him on his journey to get the offering uh, to the poor brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. He had them participate. He had, he had disciples with them. They were watching him. They were, they were looking at his life and seeing what he was doing in all these, uh, these situations. And so love must be demonstrated in how we live, and Christ must be seen in how we act and in what we do. And so let's continue on in Acts, looking at the life of Paul, how he loved, and they would love the Lord by loving the church. And verse says, verse uh, three says he stayed in Greece for, for three months. And again, as I said, this is most likely when he wrote the letter to the church in Rome while he's hanging out in Corinth. Then it says because some Jews had plotted against him, he was about to sail for Syria. He decided to go back through Macedonia. He's persevering. He's finding a way around, continuing on with the Lord's plans. I think of uh, poor Fred Nardi. My gosh, with the well. You know, we've got, we keep on running into things. We'll update you later. But, I mean, gee whiz, talk about perseverance. Pray that the Lord would persevere. But he was accompanied by these guys, the seven guys you can meet there. So seven, it's not a coincidence that it's seven men who were with Paul on his way back to Jerusalem to be representatives of giving these gifts to the Gentiles, uh, to the Jewish church, the Gentile guys bringing the gift to the Jewish church. Boy, there's a lot you... You know, there's some serious racial tension in, in, this day, in that day and age. And to have seven 
guys representing these seven churches from this area, a collection when they are being persecuted and hurt and all these things for the faith and they're giving out of the bottom of the barrel. They have nothing left and they are scraping together offerings, many of them except for Corinth, they're in trouble. They had like three collection notices from Paul. It was bad. They, they go and they get it and they're bringing it to Jerusalem, these brothers and sisters who had a great famine and who are really poor and who are being persecuted as well and their love is overflowing and they're taking it and they're saying, we love you. Boy, that speaks volumes to heal things. It's very powerful what Paul is doing there. So we see that. He's got these seven guys. And then verse five, these men went on ahead and waited for us at Troas. And so Paul sends these seven guys ahead to Troas, but Paul picked up some of the others in Philippi. So he's going through his, these, these areas over here in, in Western Greece. <clears throat> and I don't, I don't know if you caught this in verse five. It says that these men went on ahead, of, oh, ahead and waited for us in Troas. All of a sudden it says us. It didn't say us for a long time, but all of a sudden it's us. What does that mean? The guy who's writing the book is on the boat. They're together. That's Luke. He's a doctor. And so he, sent, he sends these seven guys ahead, and all of a sudden the author's back on board, and now we're going to start to see incredible amounts of detail. You can find out in the beginning of this book and also the, be, the beginning of the book of Luke that he's writing to a guy named Theophilus and recording all these events of what actually happened after Christ uh, was resurrected here in the book of Acts. And Paul picks up Luke again in Philippi, And you can see that all of a sudden, again, it's getting very detailed. Uh, Luke is just a very detailed type guy. He's he's a doctor. And so he's just precise in things. And it says, but we sailed from Philippi, verse uh, whatever, six. (laughs) But we sailed from Philippi after the festival of unleavened bread. And five days later, we joined the others at Troas where, where... where we on this on the first day of the week came together to break bread and so paul is sending people ahead he's picking up others and he's meeting back again all together on the first day of the week to break bread and paul would often send some ahead of him to the city where he was going to encourage paul only had so much so many days in a week and time paul do you think if paul could clone himself he would i mean it's the Apostle Paul. Everybody wants Paul's attention, and he can't do that. Do you ever feel like that? Sometimes I can only be in one place at one time for crying out loud. So what does he do? He disciples people, delegates them, sends them ahead. They go and they start meeting with people, and they start teaching them and, and talking about them, finding out what's going on. And when the time, by the time Paul shows up, he's, he's, he's getting a report from these brothers and brothers, what's going on. He did it with Priscilla and Aquila. He did it with, uh, Tricarchus or whatever his name was. He did it with Timothy. He did it with a bunch of other people. He sends him ahead and he starts answering questions. And so when he gets there, he's able to get the scoop of what's going on in these people's life. What do they need spiritually? What, how can I focus my time here? How can I make it the best as possible, the most use of my time? Instead of trying to figure everything out, he's got some people in place that he trusts and loves that have the best heart of the people, and he's finding out what's going on, and now he's talking with them and, and, and going, okay, I'm going to deal with these things. We see that with Timothy in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, for this reason I have sent you Timothy, my son whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord, and he will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach in every and everywhere in all the churches. So he sends Timothy ahead. And again, he sends Timothy and Philippi. He says, the Philippians chapter 2, verse 19, says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also be, be cheered when I receive news about you. They did not have email. You could not tweet what was going on in the church. You could, he was trying to get in the lives of people he cared about. The only way to do that was physically to go there and to talk to someone. He had to send a representative. Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. So when we could no longer stand it, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens, and we sent Timothy, who is our brother and co-worker in God's service and spreading the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you in your faith so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. And so he's longing to, um, he sees these needs. How many of you see needs in the lives of people that you just can't possibly meet? Anyone? Think of the burden Paul had. He was so concerned that he was 
thinking of ways, raising up other people to actually spread out and, and do that on his behalf with the same heart he had. That means that took what? Time to invest in someone else. That doesn't happen overnight. He planned that out. He was always grabbing people and bringing them alongside of what he's doing. This is, this is essential in parenting. In, in everything we do, it's going to take twice as long. I did it with John, changing the tires on the car. Started when he was little, just grabbing the lug nut with dad. I mean, grabbing the wrench, uh, I mean, the breaker bar with dad to break the lug nuts, right? So he's not doing any pressure or whatever. But he's just there, he has his hand on it, and he thinks he's doing great. <laughs> Good job, John. Let's do another one, Zara, right? You just hold the lug nuts, right? He's holding the lug nuts for the first season. Then as he's getting a little bigger and heavier, and you can see the progression, then he starts to, he's walking alongside me, he's seeing it happen. And then guess what's happening? He's doing it with me. And then guess what? I'm doing it with him. And then guess what? He's doing it. That took some years. Just because he didn't have the physical ability to do it. At, at, at the first, he didn't have the weight to break it, right? But he learned. So dragging people along with you and just realizing it's not going to be instant, it's just life. And you're just going to put them in situations and go, hey, I want you to go do this. They might totally fail. It's okay. That's what discipleship's about. So what did you learn? What's going on? How'd that work? What'd they say to you? Oh, they didn't like you when you told them about Jesus. <clears throat> what do you think about that? What did Jesus do? Did that happen to Jesus? Discipleship takes time. And our own family members, Paul did this. He didn't have email, didn't have a phone, he couldn't do all that stuff right away, but he had men that were the heart of his heart. We have only so many hours in the day and we can only be in one place at one time and yet we feel that same burden. This is why we, we're called to prioritize our days according to the Lord's call upon our lives. We must be investing in someone who can do things on our behalf. Do things on our behalf. We can share who we can do things on others' behalf. Amen? We can serve others. And he sent those other people, Tardis, uh, Titus, Art Artemis, and, and Tychicus, and a bunch of others, right? So something interesting to note in verse 7, they all met on Troas after a week. And it says in verse 7, on the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. It was common practice uh, for believers to gather together as a church on the first day of the week, which is what? It's the Lord's Day, Sunday. And so Jesus actually started the tradition. I just want you to say this is not controversial because Jesus started the tradition. It actually began when Jesus was raised from the dead on the first day of the week. He chose it, I did not. And then we see in John chapter 20, it says on the evening of that first day when he rose again, when Jesus uh, rose again, the disciples were together, the doors were locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, and Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. That first day, they're all gathered together. What happens? Jesus shows up. He says, don't be afraid. And they freaked out. I think he ate some food with them. And Thomas wasn't there, right? So what happened? So it says what happened to the following Lord's Day, the following first day of the week, a week later. This is John 20, 26. It says Thomas was with them. And though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. So Jesus is showing up on Sundays for some reason. Don't have an idea why. So Jesus keeps showing up on the first day of the week as they were gathered together. Fast forward 50 days from the resurrection, the day of Pentecost, which was the first day of the week, a Sunday. In Acts chapter 2, it says when, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all gathered together in one place. And what happened? The Holy Spirit fell and the church was born on the first day of the week, on a Sunday. Holy Spirit fell. And now I don't want you to get the impression that they were just meeting on Sundays because that's not true. They, that became the tradition. Actually, they met every day in various places, in various groups, Acts 2.42 says. They weren't limited by Sunday. Amen? 
You aren't limited by Sunday. Praise the Lord. There's no Sunday law. You're free in the Lord, amen? But the tradition is they met on Sunday and every single day of the week. Jews, they were meeting on Saturdays still. They were still observing the Sabbath. They were still doing all these things. But guess what was happening to the Gentile church? They were not meeting on Saturdays. They were meeting on Sundays. And I know there's a big stink about one or the other. And I don't want to get into that this morning. I have before. Paul, gets, Paul was very Jewish. He had a, he had a, a total, absolute, 100% uh, 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 habit of every time he went into a city, he went into a Sabbath, on, uh, into the church on Saturday, uh, into the synagogue on Saturday. Why did he do that? To refute the Jews. He went to go reason with them. And then he went out and hung out with the Gentiles on Sunday. See this over and over and over again. They were gathered together in one place. Now I don't want you to get the impression again. They were, they were all meet, or meeting in all the, pl- all the different places. Acts 2.42 says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe. And many wonders and signs were being performed by the apostles. And all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold their property and possessions to give to everyone who had a need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. So they met in the temple courts and they broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts. So where were they meeting? In the temple. And they were meeting also where? So why aren't we meeting in the temple? Yeah, I'm just saying. It's not the place. Jesus said, I'm searching, searching for worshipers who worship me in what? Spirit and, spirit and truth. We have this northern worship center up here in this place. The woman at the well said in John chapter 4. Southern people said, we've got Jerusalem. Jesus made it clear, you don't know what you, you worship in the north. You're all whacked out up there. We do know what we worship as Jews. But God is not looking for a mountain. He's looking for a heart. That's where he wants to be. He wants to have church in your heart. It's no longer, his presence is no longer in the temple, brothers and sisters. It's not, just, it's not associated with the day. It's associated with the people. The land he possesses is our heart. Does he have your heart this morning? Monday morning. Are you, are you the church? Are you the church Tuesday? How about Thursday. You see, it's life by the Spirit. But just want you to make sure that these were not Sunday Christians. They were devoted to getting together and being in the Word and prayer and bre- breaking bread together in temple courts and at homes or wherever they were. Amen? And we too, we meet in different groups, but our tradition, just like theirs was, was to come together, the entire church, on the first day of the week. Paul said several times, when you come together, when you come together, when you come together. It wasn't an option. They were getting together as a church. We get together in all these various places, but we come together on Sunday morning. It's a priority in our lives. It's not a legal thing, but I tell you what, it's a love thing. Amen? Why did they get together? Paul makes the reference on the first day of the week tons of times. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, just this is one, this is the major one. Paul tells the church in Corinth, on the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money and keeping your income, saving it up so that whenever I come, no collections will have to be made. You have to go into the Greek there, but he's talking about the treasury, the treasury of the church. When you get to, you come together on the first day of the week, go ahead and take your money, gather it together so when I come, you don't, we don't have to deal with things. Take a collection on the first day. This is what was happening on the first day of the week. Now I want to make sure that you don't think that I'm saying that anywhere in the New Testament they were commanded to meet on that certain day. I I don't don't see it. But I do see examples set by the apostles in the early church that although they met every day in different various places, they all came together on the first day of the week. And it seems to me that it was tied to Jesus' resurrection 
his various direct appearances to the apostles on the very first day of the week where they were gathered together. And by the way, also that's what the apostles did uh, as a tradition. And so our church has historically met on the Lord's day to show um, our love for him and to demonstrate our love for him uh, by loving one another. And by the way, we can meet on Saturday and Fridays and Wednesdays and whatever. We're not bound by that. We're free to meet every single day. I love that. And for us, just like our brothers and sisters 2,000 years ago, we gather together today. So, although we're not under the law, we're under the law of love, are we not? And a love is a choice, not an emotion. Love is a sacrificial for the Lord and His people. And I want to commend you for choosing to be here this morning. To choose to hear from the Lord through His Word and to be around His people and to set all the other things aside for a few hours and to give Him the first and the best because... You love him because you love him, because you love his people. So be encouraged this morning. Hebrews 10.24 speaks to this powerfully. He says, and let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. When does that happen? He says, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day of approaching. When does that happen? How do we encourage one another? When do we get into each other's life? When do the gifts of the Spirit happen? When does encouragement happen? When do all these things that God has created you to do, when does it happen? When we get together. This morning, yes, in the teaching of the Word of God, the edifying and the changing of your minds and all these types of things, but also throughout the week. Call up brothers and sisters. Find out how they're doing. See what's going on in their lives. Give and receive from one another. Amen? So Paul found a way to be, to be to gather together with the Lord's people on the first day. He was on boat trips. He was going everywhere, and he found a way to be gathered together with the Lord's people on the first day. I think that's awesome. Why? Because he loved them. So now in verse, 70, 17 it says, uh, verse 7, it says, On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. This would be the love feast. This is when people uh, who didn't have anything in the church came together on Sunday morning, what would happen is they'd have a big, it would be a feast. They'd have a potluck on Sundays. And people who didn't have any food would come and eat. And the people who had food, they'd bring their food and they would share it. Corinth had a problem with this and that's how we know what this is because the rich people were just eating all the food and getting drunk and the poor people were starving and feeling left out. And so Paul just said, that is not love. And they were sharing their food together though. That's awesome. And then they would go after that and they would turn into the communion. So they were gathering together to break bread. That's what that means. Practical way of showing love. And it goes on. Paul spoke to the people because he intended to leave the next day. And he kept on talking until midnight. You think you have it rough. (laughs) Actually, in the Bible, a a day is from sundown to sundown. And so our Saturday night uh, would actually be the beginning of the first day. That's a biblical day. So they gathered together on Saturday night there, which is the first day, and Paul is talking until midnight, so not so bad as you thought, but still. Now it, was, now it says that as Paul kept talking, the King James says preached at them. As he kept talking, preached. This is not one-sided dialogue. This is actually the word for dialogue. He's meeting with them. He expounds in the scriptures. They're asking questions. They're just talking back and forth all night. That's what's going on. It's healthy. It's a neat process. So Paul's on this long journey. He's spending precious time with these brothers and sisters, answering questions, and he's teaching them the word of God. Paul is available. He's showing his love. I don't know about you, but I'd be getting ready for my long trip the next day. I'd be napping. What is he doing? He's not. He's pouring out his gifts for these people. He loves them. And it says in verse 8, there were many lamps in the upstairs room where they were meeting. I think this is mentioned because it's probably very stuffy and hot and smoky as you can imagine, right? Verse 9, seated in a window, trying to get some air perhaps, was a young man named Eutychus who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. Notice how detailed Luke is here. I'm not very impressed with Luke at the moment. On and on. What's that about, Luke? What about the notes? What was he talking about? Come on. Bring some content. When he was sound asleep, this Eutychus, he fell out, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. 
horrible. Can you imagine if we're all meeting and someone just drops dead? Uh, what would that do? There's a couple lessons we can learn from this. Number one, don't fall asleep in church. N- number two, God is merciful and that he's blessed us with a one-story facility. Otherwise, we might have our membership sharply decrease. Lastly, your pastor's sermons are short, biblically speaking. <laughs> so Luke, who is in the room seeing this happen as a doctor, and he's saying Eutychus was picked up dead. He was dead. And by the way, dead in Greek means dead. <laughs> Just wanted you to know the full meaning of that. So Paul went down, and he threw himself on the young man and put his arms around him. Perhaps he's thinking back to Old Testament, where Elisha did that, or Elijah. He said, don't be alarmed. He said he's alive. And then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. And after talking until daylight, he left. You guys have it easy. The people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. I love Paul's heart. This is where we're ending. I love Paul's heart. He threw himself on the young man and put his arms around him. No doubt he's praying. He's talking and preaching, and there's this, you know, it's a stuffed room, and everybody's, you know, people are, you know, fading in and out. It's getting late. You just had to, you know, just ate some food, whatever it might be, and he just falls out the window. And Paul runs downstairs, and he throws himself on this guy. And the Lord shows himself strong, and Eutychus, which means fortunate, is alive. I'm going to take a little bit of license here, and so take this with a grain of salt, please. Outside the lines here, this is not the meaning of the passage, but there's going to be people you're going to be dialoguing with about the Lord that are just going to nod off and fall out the window dead. It's going to happen. You know, perhaps you brought them to church and I bored them to death. The heat of the conversation caused them to lose interest. They're just too tired to make it on Sunday or to fellowship or whatever. Don't give up when they fall. Don't just love them with words. Don't just watch them on the pavement. Uh, Be there to fall upon them. Wrap your arms around them. Get close when they're dead in their trespasses and sins or whatever the case may be. Love them in word and in deeds. Amen? See if the Lord would bring them back to life through your life thrown down for theirs. Perhaps we see that is in fact like them, that they would be alive. We'd say, hey, they're alive again. It's interesting that the resurrection miracle happened on the first day of the week with Eutychus in the presence of all believers. God likes to do miracles when the people of God gather together on the day of the Lord. It's just weird how he does that. Not that he's limited. He can do whatever he wants. He's Lord. But for some reason, the Holy Spirit over and over and over and over and over does these things on the first day of the week. It's a day of new beginnings. It's a day of, it's the eighth day. New life. So next Sunday is Easter, right? And uh, invite a family, invite a friend. I know there's history with Easter and all that good stuff, you know, and how it's all packed up with a bunch of pagan junk. I don't care. Jesus is risen. We're celebrating it. You know, I know all that stuff. But Jesus is alive. He's risen. He does this stuff. He takes dead people and he makes them alive again. You know, he does that. He does it in settings like this. People falling asleep, falling out of windows. Invite your lost neighbors. I want you to do that. Or those that are kind of sleepy in the Lord, perhaps, you know? Let them hear the words of life again, the good news that Jesus is alive and that he holds the key of death and hell. And he has the power to call the dead and to bring them to life. And perhaps we're going to see some Eutychuses, uh, you know, experience the grace of the Lord at this coming Lord's Day. Amen? That's what it's all about. It's really about. It's church letting Jesus so fill us that the life of Christ is poured out to others.
We preach the gospel. We preach the simple gospel. For the, in the, in the, the power is in the gospel. But you know that? It's not in your presentation, obviously. It's not with the lights. It's not with the glitter. It's Christ in you. He's put that power in you. And whether your part is to live it out or to speak it out or to love it out, whatever it might be, be wholehearted in it. Be wholehearted in the gospel. Share who he is by how you live. Love deeply. Throw your arms around people. Amen? Lord, I want to thank you that while we were dead and we were far away from you, I remember being 19 and just so far lost. My mind was gone. I was in sin. Um, And you just threw your arms around me. You loved me. And you picked me up. And I was uh, and I was alive, even though I, I I went far away from you in those years, Lord. I know I was yours, but I was just as dead. I'd forgotten the grace and the love you'd given me, and my mind and my heart were so set on things that were so contrary to you. And you've been so faithful just to love me, in spite of me. You never gave in to my tantrums or my fits or anything I've ever you know oh God why did you do this or you just were patient and kind and loving with me and you spoke truth to me and I wrestled but you still put your arms around me and I'm thankful for that this morning I'm thankful that you're that same God who longs to bring back kids who longs to resurrect the dead who longs to speak life Ultimately, we have to wrestle with you, Lord, no one else. And so, Lord, I just ask that as we go and be uh, lights, um, that we would be full of your love and your truth, Lord, of course. But we ask uh, that our lives would be arranged according to your kingdom, not in a legal sense, but just out of a great, sense of of awe and thankfulness for what you've done to us oh lord jesus you've taken our sin and you've removed it as far as the east is from the west what would you have us to do this week we're yours we're your church we love you we're here to serve you to wash your feet to go out and reach a lost neighbor whatever it might be but lord we can't do it without you we're nervous and we're scared and we're weak and we're a little faith and all that great stuff. But you are mighty and your spirit was within us. So Lord, help us partake of that divine nature this week by faith to love deeply. Bless these people as they go. In the name and in the power and the authority of Jesus, we pray. Amen.